This podcast is a co-production between Latitude Media and Canary Media. And if you support this show, if you support the clean energy journalism you get every day from our friends at Canary, make a donation to their newsroom by going to canarymedia.com slash donate. Your financial support helps them survive and thrive and be a leading voice in the energy transition. And Canary is a 501c3 nonprofit, so your donations are tax deductible. Go to canarymedia.com slash donate to do your part. From the studios of Latitude Media and Canary Media. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. What having a cost-effective 100-hour battery does for them is it, it sits as an asset that allows them to bring on these lower-cost but intermittent resources, which help them meet load growth, while not sacrificing on reliability or capacity and keeping costs in line. What would you do with a 100-hour battery? If you don't get the Klondike bar reference, then that's on you. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Okay, so one of my biggest dumb pet peeves is uh, this class of terms that become popular and then get used and abused so much that they basically lose all meaning. And in my mind, there's no better example of this, at least in the energy sector, than the term long-duration energy storage. I've heard this term used for everything from like six hours of energy storage to seasonal energy storage. I've seen project announcements and RFPs where lithium-ion batteries claim to be long-duration energy storage despite serving basically the exact same purpose that every other lithium-ion battery on the grid serves. And it's frustrating not just because of the semantics, though I am a stickler for semantics. The basic premise behind long-duration energy storage which is that an increasing share of intermittent generation, largely from wind and solar, is going to command energy storage systems that last longer than the batteries that we've been putting on the grid thus far, is true. Like Fundamentally, that is a thing that we are likely to need as we decarbonize the grid. But it's not one thing. As the grid evolves, we're going to need multiple types of different resources serving multiple different purposes, some storage, some generation, some transmission, et cetera, et cetera. And one of those new types of resources that presents potentially a new class of asset comes from Form Energy, which is really the only sizable company that is building a 100-hour battery, or as they call it, a multi-day storage asset. So it's a fundamentally different type of asset than certainly the lithium-ion systems that we see on the grid today, but even, I think, most of the other so-called long-duration energy storage systems that are being discussed or installed today. So it, it takes some wrapping your head around exactly what role it might serve on the grid, what it competes with, how it might fit into the picture of a fully decarbonized grid. And it's 
kind of important, I think, because there are a bunch of problems that you need to solve as you increase generation from intermittent resources on the grid. Some of them are hard to solve with the tools that we've got at hand today. We at EIP are investors in Forum, and I would say this is the most common question that we get, which is, what do you actually do with a 100-hour battery on the grid, and do we need it? So let's find out. Not for the first time and probably not for the last, I brought on Matteo Jaramillo, who is my friend and the CEO and co-founder of Forum, to talk about the various classes of energy storage that the future holds and what one actually does with multiple days of energy storage sitting in a battery. Here's Matteo. Matteo, welcome. Thanks, Joe. It's great to chat with you as always. As always, excited to chat with you about the future of the grid and the role of multi-day storage, but let's let's build up to it. Starting with talking about the predominant form of battery energy storage on the grid today, which is lithium-ion. So you, uh, you were involved in the early days of building Tesla's stationary energy storage business and products before, uh, before starting form. So let's talk about the role that lithium-ion plays on the grid, like how you saw that progressing then and where you see it today. And then we'll use that to build into like what, what might we need in addition to lithium-ion and why. But what is the role of lithium-ion, as you see it? Sure. Um, so, as always, again, great to be back. But uh, the the role of lithium-ion is becoming pretty clear. It's already obviously used at great volumes today, uh, although I do wonder how much lead acid is still deployed on the grid uh, that we sort of have forgotten uh, that's sitting around out there. <laughs> it's more than you'd think. I actually saw those numbers not too long ago. I mean, yeah. we're not adding a ton of new lead acid, but like, there's still quite a bit there. It's a it's a stale capacity for sure. Um, but but I did work in the acid before I worked in lithium ion, so I do, right. I do have I that for that. me. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a growing acceptance of the value of lithium ion to provide relatively short duration functions into the system, and that's for uh, everything from sort of minutes of duration, where it sort of originally started, 15 minute fast frequency response uh, in PJM, to now longer. Uh, longer duration, that's the key, longer, uh, you know, sort of four four hours, coming up on six hours in some cases. Um, and that's really providing a lot of peaking services or ramping services um, into the system. So so helping with the balancing function, broadly speaking. Um, and and although they are capable of providing energy for, for hours at a time, still they're essentially power batteries, um, largely, and they're doing intraday uh, applications, whatever they may be. So, so generally taking energy from one part of the day, moving it into another part of that same day. And that's sort of the broad umbrella for, for what lithium-ion is doing on the grid today. And it's doing it for a lot of different regions geographically for a lot of di- different sort of specific functions within that, but that's generally what it's doing. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will, will already know this, but just as a reminder for anybody who ha- isn't super familiar with like the economics, how the economics scale for lithium-ion, you know, Technically, right, there's no reason lithium-ion couldn't deliver days, weeks, seasons of storage. There's no, there's no technical limitation to the duration of a lithium-ion battery. It's an economic limitation, right? Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely correct. And, and, and lithium-ion has fantastic technical capabilities for a lot of reasons. Very dense gravimetrically and volumetrically. It cycles a lot. Uh, and it can discharge at, at much slower rates um, than what is currently used for today. Like I said, sort of minutes to hours duration. Uh, but it becomes economic to do so over that time period. So, so, so that's sort of the key trick when you when you talk about duration of a energy storage technology. It could be any kind. Um, you really have to make sure that we're talking about sort of at rated power. So, 
when we when we rate a battery, we rate it for both energy and power, and the energy is only relevant to the extent that it's uh, in indirect sort of connection with the rated power of the system. So you could take a four-hour, you know, quote-unquote rated lithium-ion battery and discharge it for 100 hours, and you would effectively be paying, you know, a much higher price for that power over that duration. And why is it that you wouldn't design or shouldn't design a lithium-ion battery to do dozens, hundreds of hours of storage at rated power? It's it's really just cost. So you're taking, you have a per unit of, of per hour cost, essentially, adder. And for every incremental hour that you want to be able to discharge at rated power, you pay that cost. In the case of lithium-ion, let's say that's roughly $100 a kilowatt hour. You're adding $100 for every hour you want to discharge. And 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 the industry normalizes around dollar per kilowatt in terms of comparative resources. So uh, everything comes comes back to that figure in the end. Um, you know, sort of in the battery world, we, we we like to talk about kilowatt hours, dollar cost per kilowatt hour, but the industry does not really do that. Um, and so your your cost comparisons are always on a dollar per kilowatt. Um, and so so then the question becomes, how many hours do I get for that cost per kilowatt? And for lithium mine today, that's roughly four hours. Um, but if I need 100 hours, uh, I'm not going to pay, you know, 25 times as much on a per kilowatt basis uh, for that resource. It just doesn't clear in the market. It, it is not uh, anywhere close to being a least cost alternative <laughs> to provide that kind of function into the system. Right. Okay. So we'll move on from lithium ion to talking about what technologies can serve the longer duration applications and what those applications actually are in a second. But before we do, one thing I'm curious about your perspective on is, do you see any, is lithium ion just going to remain in perpetuity dominant in that category, in that 15 minute to four hour duration category? Like, do you see any reason why a different technology would play a significant role? Or do you think that at this point, like the train has left the station? Well, it certainly is the incumbent, and displacing the incumbent in this industry in particular is challenging. Um, I also think that there's a cost entitlement to be significantly lower than where it is today, which is which is low cost <laughs> compared to where it was just a few years ago. Uh, so, so it's a shifting landscape for any sort of aspirant to to dethrone lithium mine in that I would say intraday duration space. So, so ultimately, that's you know roughly ten to twelve hours, uh, you know, for a complete cycle, let's say. Um, in in the use case that you're going for. And there may be others that come along or are a bit cheaper, but but again, sort of d- displacing lithium-ion is going to be really hard. I mean, the, the grid markets are sort of the tail on the dog of the automotive markets right now, um, driving the, the production of, of lithium-ion at scale. And so, so the, the uh, industry that we're in, the electric industry, gets to benefit from that massive scale and there is no other sort of chemistry or technology that that benefits from the same uh, tailwinds, essentially. Um, so it's really hard to to see how that happens precisely. Now, there's always you know I'm a technologist optimist at heart, so I like to believe that you know new great technologies will show up in some interesting ways. Um, but I also think it's a really tall task to think that you know brand new technology from a standing stop essentially today is going to be dis- displacing lithium ion you know across the board. Uh, for anything up to you know ten or twelve hours. Okay, so let's move on to talking about the quote unquote long duration energy storage world, which um, I think you agree with me is a term that gets abused more than it gets appropriately used. So, 
Let, let's start by talking about what we yeah, generally people mean durations longer than I think people mean. Actually, I don't know what people really mean when they use the term, and I'm sure it differs. But like in theory, it's longer durations than what the today's batteries typically deliver. And so, I've heard everything from six hours to seasons being sort of like within the long duration energy storage category. And one of the things that you and I, I know, have talked about is like. Part of the result of that is that there have been some solicitations from utilities that are for quote-unquote long-duration storage that'll be for eight hours plus or something like that, and lithium-ion just ends up winning that still today. So let's not talk about long-duration energy storage as one category. Let's talk about it based on the, the actual functions of the batteries that are being deployed. Beyond the sort of, as you said, the kind of four to, let's say, eight-hour range that lithium-ion is ion is well suited to. Do you think of there being value in a middle category before we get to what you're up to that's in that sort of, I don't know, 12 to 24 hour range? So I, I let me paint the landscape a little bit more broadly because I think it, it is helpful. Um, we, we at Forum anyway, always think about uh, the system operating as a portfolio. And, and within that operation of the portfolio, what I mean is all the different assets, whether they're generation assets or transmission or, or storage, um, they all need to obviously operate in concert. They, they need to be synchronized, literally for, for frequency reasons and then also, you know, <laughs> just in general, like operating a, a fleet. And it, it's really important within that context when we're thinking about the function of duration in there, uh, for storage in particular, to understand how that duration fits into that again that portfolio operation like what what is it doing what what kind of value does it bring through those numbers of hours that we're saying we have and, and I think we've what lithium mine has done as we've talked about has already established very clearly the value of a few hours of duration right right now it's predominantly four hours let's say it's moving to six hours um, in, in the applications that I that I mentioned earlier so so there's unambiguous value for for that duration of energy storage and then and then we start to say okay well what what additional value is there through the incremental hours of duration? And that could be 12 hours, or that could be 24 hours, could be 45 hours, right? Um, and, and so then, then we need to really understand what kinds of things it might displace. Like, let's say you, you built a model and you sort of ran the co-optimization. What would, let's say, lower-cost lithium ion or something like it, what would it displace in the system? If, you, if I run my capacity expansion models, my, I run my integrated resource planning, what gets picked up instead of... Uh, or, or rather, what what does picking up that duration energy storage displace that I otherwise would have in my system? And and one way to think about it is sort of capacity factors for gas plants. And and so you know we say peaker plants. That's sort of the the easy way to say that's what lithium ion does today. It displaces peaker plants, gas peaker plants. And peaker plants typically are defined as gas plants that operate less than five percent of the hours in a year, right? And so if you take the total number of hours in in the year, uh, you know that's 400 hours, roughly, uh, you know, lithium-ion batteries can can relatively easily accomplish that kind of thing. By the way, these are not consecutive hours; these are spread out over the course of the year. So, so that's why that works. Um, and then you start to go through the uh, the histogram of the of the capacity factors of the plants that are operating on the grid, and these fall into a big bucket as as w- what the industry would call sort of mid-merit gas plants. So, you know, 20% capacity factors, 30%, you know, all the way up to sort of 60 or 70%. And then there are some plants, of course, that are, that want to be operating very close to 100%, uh, and those are what we historically would call sort of baseload plants. Um, you know, baseload as a notion is sort of going away with 
for, for lots of reasons that we probably don't want to go into right now. Um, but that question of duration for energy storage needs to be answered fairly precisely in terms of function that those other mid-merit resources are providing today. And, and so what, what we find in the modeling is that there's a lot of value for sort of up to 10 or 12 hours, let's say. Um, there is less value. I'm not going to put a specific number, but there's, there is less value that we see very markedly in the system um, until you get back up to about 75 coming in on 100 hours. And that's because with that duration, once you're close to 100 hours, you can functionally start to replace what those mid-merit gas plants are doing. 30, 50, 70% gas plants. And, and so that's where, that was sort of one of the key insights from the work that we did originally at Form on the analytics side of things, um, led by uh, Marco Ferrara, my co-founder. Um, that really drove us to that duration. It's a lot murkier, the precise value you get going from, let's say, 10 to 20 hours or 20 hours to 40 hours. They're just... You can't do much more with that incremental duration that you have to pay for, of course, for, in the device um, that somebody's going to compensate you for. The utility, the market, uh, you know, whomever. And, and so I would say that that still needs to be worked out. There are some cases you could maybe look at, you know, sort of, you know, day-to-day -day shifting. Uh, but but the values there, again, are just, they're, they are, they're not nearly as clear as the value you can bring to the system once you have 100-hour duration, four days of duration. Right. So let's get to it then. So Form is building a first product is a 100-hour rated battery. Um, let's talk about what that, wh why that. I mean, you sort of alluded to it. You can you can start to displace some of these mid-merit gas plants. But as, as you said, right, these are operating at 30%, let's say, of the hours out of the year. But the number of consecutive hours that they are operating is sort of equally important in this context, Right. Yeah, that's right, and it's it's a it's a combination of total hours as well as well as sort of consecutive hours when needed, right? Um, these are in the end playing a role of capacity reliability on the system, and and so we, it is really important to to zoom in uh, to to very high fidelity to to take a look at what precisely it's doing when and and the reason why that number of hours you know four days roughly uh, becomes relevant is because that's where a lot of the material weather events sort of sit. In terms of duration, and you know, in a grid that increasingly is driven by weather, renewable energy, uh, you need to be able to account for that type of intermittency that does inevitably come along with weather, regardless of what region you're in geographically. It could be a heat dome in the Pacific Northwest, or a polar vortex in the upper Midwest, or a nor'easter, you know, in the Northeast, or an unlikely winter storm you're in Texas. So, so you really need to be able to account for that duration because the signature of volatile weather events um, is is frequently around that duration, three, four, or five days. All right, I want to give some more specific examples because one of the things that I've heard a fair bit, I suspect you have as well, is this idea that very long-duration energy storage, multi-day storage, whatever we want to call it, is, is probably a necessary component of some future extremely high-penetration renewables world, but not uh, certainly not necessary and perhaps not even that valuable Today, like we don't need it yet. That's basically yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the argument. Um, I, I don't think that's true, but I think it's because people are don't fully understand the use case. So, Form has announced a bunch of specific deals with specific customers. Maybe we could talk through some of them and use them as sort of archetypes for where there's value today 
in a 100-hour battery, and maybe how that'll change in the future as we do get increasing penetration of renewables. But pick your, pick your starting place. Give me like an archetype. Yeah, and, and I think it's really important as well to, to locate the duration in the cost consideration as well. It's always, you know, 100 hours, but at what cost, right? And, and I think that the assumption of, oh, that, that duration is not relevant makes a really big assumption about how much you would have to pay to get it. And, and so, you know, what we have always targeted at Forum was it is a, a cost to the customer where it is unambiguously valuable uh, to have those 100-hour duration. It, I mean, we are today paying for 100-hour duration resources. Uh, they just are not, they don't happen to be storage. Um, and they are uh, sort of compensated in the, in, in the original, let's say, construction of the market design. Um, in other words, we don't really pay for reliability. We don't precisely pay for reliability or, or capacity. I use Sometimes I use those terms interchangeably, although there are more precise definitions than that. But for the purpose of this conversation, you know, that, that's one way, that's, that is a way, probably a good way to think about uh, wh- what this type of resource is doing in here. And so, you know, when we target 100 hours, it, it is at a pretty precise uh, target cost. And, and coming out of the modeling that we did and, you know, sort of what gave us the, the courage and the confidence to, to go build the company, all the modeling that we did confirmed by third-party modeling is that 100 hours and $20 per kilowatt hour is sort of the magic combination. And, and if you can hit $20 per kilowatt hour, the system will pay for 100 hours of duration. And, and the reason it will want to pay for 100-hour duration is because you're solving problems that you can only solve with that duration. But you must have that cost to, to go after it. And so that's where we see that uh, showing up in the system today um, is you're you're able to achieve whatever goals that you may have as a system operator. It could be utility, uh, let's say, or, or or an entire market. Whatever goals you have, if you have cost-effective multi-day storage, it just makes meeting those goals easier. That's one way to think about it. It's a new asset, and right now we are under-optimized for types of storage assets to play on the grid. Right now we only have short duration, whether lithium-ion or anything else that is cost-effective for that application. What we do not have today is cost-effective multi-day storage. But what we see, again, over and over again in the modeling, once you introduce that cost-effective multi-day duration asset into the mix, it makes whatever your goals are, again, that you need to achieve. They could be reliability goals. It could be uh, capacity expansion goals. In other words, meeting load growth goals. It could be meeting decarbonization goals, uh, resilience goals. It doesn't matter. If you have this new type of asset, it just makes it easier. Um, so, so that is why we are very confident that that the market is ready for this. We just need to hit the cost points, and then it becomes a question of okay, how does formula those cost targets? There's a whole bunch of reasons why we're confident about that, but we're we're well on the path to being able to to introduce at scale uh, that that cost effective multi day storage asset. It's an asset class in many ways that we're trying to create more than a battery per se. And, and, I, and what you're getting at with these customer commitments is that's what they see. That's why they're buying in now. Uh, it's because they see that the targets that we're putting in front of them, which are credible uh, for the scaled resource, uh, enable them to bring more value into their system and deliver a better product, i.e. reliable, uh, uh, cost-effective um, uh, decarbonize electricity to their customers easier. Okay, so theory of the case is that 
this multi-day storage asset class and can help utilities achieve a bunch of these various goals that they have uh, along the way to decarbonization. Before we move on to some specific examples of that, um, I do want to talk about that $20 per kilowatt hour cost figure that you cited because, I mean, contextually, right, you know, lithium ion cells might be $100 per kilowatt hour. Lithium ion systems fully installed on the grid you know, two, three times that. So we're talking about an order of magnitude reduction from a dollar per kilowatt hour cost perspective relative to lithium ion on the grid today. Let's talk about cost entitlement. Like what what makes it possible that form could get to $20 a kilowatt hour fully installed with an iron air battery? Yeah, I mean, starting from from what kind of chemistry, what kind of embodiment of that chemistry would even come close? Like that has an entitlement to to be less than twenty dollars a kilowatt hour, and and so we really started from the fundamentals. And, and iron air is what what we what we ended up with. We did not invent the chemistry; it's been around for some time, but it's never been commercialized. Um, but what we saw was the entitlement is there: cost of materials, um, the mechanical designs that embody that, uh, the the O and M costs, uh, the cost of manufacture, you name it, the, the raw abundance. Um, it, it all is able to scale and is able to hit those cost targets. One quick point of reference. You know, lithium-ion uh, active materials. So you pull the active materials out of the ground, you put them on the table, it's maybe $30, $35 a kilowatt hour, unprocessed, right? Not turned into a cell at all. For us, it's less than a dollar per kilowatt hour. And and so, you know, that you start with something very, very cheap. And the trick, of course, is to end up with something that is also very, very cheap. I can't do any expensive synthesis and I can't do, you know, any fancy, you know, manufacturing processes, you know, high precision, you know, type, Type things, so so it's got to stay cheap. That and that's the real trick um, uh, that the that the company has uh, really innovated in is is how do you start with something that is sort of fundamentally cheap and end up with a device that that is in the end is a piece of infrastructure that remains uh, very very low cost. All right, so let's get into some real world examples here. Um, can you talk about maybe just pick your favorite one? What's an example of? how an iron air battery, how multi-day storage is, is helping a utility achieve their goals around whether it be load growth, decarbonization, reliability, et cetera? So um, take Georgia Power. Georgia Power is uh, the main utility in the state of Georgia, no surprise. And uh, we, we're doing a project with them. Uh, it's slated to be about 15 megawatts, so uh, on a power basis, not, not so large but about 1,500 megawatt hours. I just want to pause on that for one second because yeah. it's 15 megawatts if you're in the electricity industry. You know, that sounds kind of small. But the funny math that you have to remind yourself of when you're doing a 100-hour battery is that it would be a 1,500 megawatt hour battery, which is, as far as I know, is going to be one of the like three or four largest batteries by energy capacity in the world. Yep, yeah. uh, assuming nothing huge shows up online in the next couple of years, but which it might. Um, but yes, it is, it's, a, it's a large uh, energy basis um, for, for that battery. And, and Georgia Power is, is a very, or Georgia, the state of Georgia, is, is an interesting grid right now. Uh, it, it's quite dynamic. Um, there's a lot of load growth. Uh, there's a lot of population growth, a lot of industry growth in the state of Georgia. And in, in fact, the, the load growth is coming on so quickly that, uh, th- that Georgia Power has gone back to their regular to update their integrated resource plan two years early because uh, they see the need to build out much more capacity even sooner than what they had anticipated. And they want to be able to do a lot more renewable power than what they are currently on track to do today. And that's based on customer demand, uh, large industrial customers who who want there to be clean energy in in Georgia, as well as it being a very low-cost resource that they want to be able to incorporate into their system. And and so... uh, 
part of what having a cost-effective 100-hour battery does for them is it it sits as an asset that allows them to bring on these lower cost but intermittent resources, which help them meet load growth, while not sacrificing on reliability or capacity and keeping costs in line. So, so it sort of it, it sits across a couple of interesting different value streams for the utility. And what's great about Georgia Power is that they, at least in this case, they they run their own internal markets, right? They're not part of a wholesale market. Um, and so they can pretty precisely put a value on on reliability, which the wholesale markets today do not do. Um, and so they know how much they're willing to essentially pay for reliability. It doesn't mean they tell us. <laughs> it just means that they know what, what their willingness uh, is internally. And then, of course, you know, we have to negotiate and it has to be approved by their by their regulator and, and everything else. But um, that's an example where this kind of asset just makes them meeting all those goals that they've got for load growth and decarbonization and reliability. It just makes it easier. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. The other factor too, I think if you're in one of these situations where you're building out a ton of new generation, which is definitely true of Georgia Power, as you said, um, is that the introduction of multi-day storage actually affects the amount of new generation that you need to build, right? Yeah, that, that's right. And 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 these days, you know, the plans are to build so much new generation overall and so much new renewable generation specifically, and even within that, so much solar specifically, that the implication on the land uh, is quite large, in fact. And, and if if you take a state like Georgia or the, you know, the plans that they have, it, you know, it's implying qu- quite a bit of land. Now, to put it in perspective, because I don't want to be like a land doomer on this, uh, it, it is a tiny percentage of, <laughs> you know, of of land that's put for all sorts of industrial uses. So it's not like you're 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 blanketing the state. However, uh, going and getting land for for any power project, frankly, is challenging these days. And so, um, by having cost-effective multi-day storage, you can incorporate more renewable energy without sacrificing reliability. At basically half half the land cost, and that by that I mean you only have to put solar on half as many acres to get the same benefit, um, and that's because you're essentially solving the reliability with a different type of asset that allows you to co-optimize your system in a different way. And and this is a big driver, right? It's you know there are, there are very public battles over over land use these days uh, for power projects, pretty much of any kind, uh, but in particular for for places. Um, uh, where they're where they want to build out a lot of solar, so so that is another benefit, and and we see this again over and over. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to build a lot more wind resources, offshore or onshore or solar. Um, having this kind of asset makes again achieving your goals just a lot easier. In this particular case, by really reducing the amount of land you need. All right, I want to do maybe two more examples. Um, first, so we we've got Georgia Power example is like southeast 
U.S., load growth, lots of new renewables, uh, solar-heavy part of the country. Let's try the Midwest, right? Wind-heavy as opposed to solar-heavy. Different weather, right? We, we didn't really talk about the weather issues that Georgia Power faces, but they're different from if you're in MISO. Um, and, and organized wholesale market, yeah. which, is, which is not true there. Yeah, so so let's take one of the Excel energy projects. Um, Excel uh, is is one of the major utilities in the in the Midwest of the United States. They're based in Colorado, but they've got operations sort of south of there, all the way up to to and including Minnesota. Um, and they are a wind heavy mix that they have there. And so uh, for the and they also participate, as you were saying, in wholesale markets. In this case, MISO. And and so for them, they want to be able to. Uh, hit their decarbonization goals. And Excel Energy deserves a lot of credit for being the first major utility that that really put a public stake out there and said, we intend to be 80% decarbonized by 2030, and we have the tools to go do that right now. We intend to be at 100% by, I think they said, 2045. We do not know how we're going to get there, but we're still going to make the commitment. And we assume that the technologies that allow us to do that cost-effectively will show up. And so they really put a huge stake in the ground. And uh, at least informs little tiny arc. Uh, that was a big moment because we were, you know, we were still a fairly nascent. I mean, we we are still, but um, even more nascent company. <laughs> and and that was a big validation that, you know, contrary to to your earlier point, there was going to be a need for a hundred hour longer duration. Let's say uh, sooner than what people were anticipating. And Excel sort of put that uh, put that goal out there. Um, so so we're working with them. Uh, in in this case, it is to still around a hundred hour duration. Uh, which allows them to incorporate more renewables into their system while meeting their load growth. You know, some of the dynamics are all all very similar. Uh, we are in a growth moment for the electric industry, which is which is not what it had been for the last forty years, roughly. Um, and so, all the utilities are thinking about that, and, and they're thinking about how they meet load growth while they have assets which have recently retired, assets which will soon retire, specifically coal in this case, um, and. Um, and also how they, again, add as much new generation as possible. And so Excel also participates in the in that wholesale market you were referencing, Shale, the, the, the mid-continent uh, system there. And, and so for them, they, there's a market element to what they want to do. They want to be able to sort of bid, bid their assets uh, in, in right ways and hedge their risk, uh, their costs, essentially, for being exposed on the wholesale markets too. And that's what this type of asset allows them to do. You know, having a 100-hour duration resource is a physical hedge against price spikes in a way that you can only really financially hedge right now um, it, unless you have, again, thermal resources. So it, it sort of opens up a new a new frontier uh, for market participation in a way that short-duration storage does not. All right, one more example I want to talk about. Maybe this isn't a specific uh, deal that you've announced, but because it's, I think, sort of the topic du jour right now in the industry, which is the transmission and interconnection bottleneck. I mean, as you said, we're yeah. in we're in a, a resumed period of growth in electricity demand, but there is a ton of generation that's sitting in interconnection queues. There's reform coming, but who knows how big it's going to be and how soon it's going to come. And meanwhile, we're really just not building out enough new transmission. I think everybody now recognizes this is a big problem and and becoming bigger as time goes on. What role, you know, in the early days of form? when you're still sort of figuring out like what what is the type of battery we need to build and what um what role might it play one of the proposed use cases was sort of alleviate transmission bottlenecks yeah how do you see that playing out today well 
Uh, we, it's moving quickly, I would say. It was an application that we sort of identified early on, and then we sort of put on the back burners. We went and pursued the, the ones that we just talked about. But um, it, it's come back pretty quickly, partially because people have really picked up their wind uh, plans, again, with, with in the wake of the IRA getting passed. And uh, what we're seeing now is uh, there's that application in a couple ways. One is um, just sort of uh, allowing ex- more capacity on the existing system, as is. Uh, so you have congestion, right? You have curtailment um, as a result of a lot of wind showing up at the same time on the same node. And so how do you deal with that as a transmission system? Uh, and so we look at it from from that view. Um, how do we build out more transmission as efficiently as possible? It's difficult to build transmission, um, even when you have great people like Mike Skelly uh, working on that. Um, so we want to be as impactful for every line that we run uh, for transmission. And having storage, you know, the ability to buffer at one end or both ends uh, makes that uh, even more a highly utilized resource. So so that's one angle to it. The other is on the operational side of things. If you own one of those wind farms and you're now being curtailed or or you, uh, let's say you're in in the market and you you have a ton of basis risk, in other words, you know, my cost that I'm paid uh, is, is at a different location from the uh, the place where I'm putting in my power and, and I bear that risk for, for that price spread, um, the, the ability to have a type of resource that allows you to sh- what we call shape around that risk. In other words, move your energy by, you know, by days, essentially, um, is what's required to get out of that conundrum that, that a lot of existing plants find themselves in today. And so that is, that's sort of a, uh, a, a, I would say, fast-coming application for us uh, we're looking at projects with project owners all throughout SPP, the Southern Power Pool, all throughout MISO, uh, where there's a lot of wind today uh, and a lot of existing assets that um, that are in some challenged economic circumstances. And again, having this new physical hedge uh, helps um, maybe turn around some of those assets. The other thing I've heard, I think, a number of times when, when I talk to folks about form um, is the notion of like, what do you do? Okay, so let's just say you've got a 100-hour battery on the grid. And this is going to be specific to the application and the situation, but let's try to generalize it if we can. Um, what do you do with that battery, right? Because like you can imagine the simplified version of it is if it's a capacity or reliability resource predominantly, then, and, and you know, if it looks like a gas peaker does or something like that, or, you know, similarly, if you're like, if you're operating in ERCOT and you figure you're going to make all your money off of the three days a year where there's some multi-day crazy weather event and prices are $9,000 a megawatt hour, then you can imagine the operations of the battery are super, super simple. You basically charge it up and then just hold the charge and wait yeah. for that, wait for your window and then discharge for three days straight and then charge it back up until the next one. Is that how you see operations of a form battery um, in in most situations, or do you think it's going to be more dynamic? Like, what will it actually look like? Yeah, I, I think it will not be that first case at all. Uh, I think it'll be much more the latter. You know, that that uh, arbitrage play that you're describing, NERCOT, that is what lithium mine does today, and and it can it can clear the the return hurdles uh, for a merchant plant um, in that market based on the structure of that market. Right now, there aren't enough hours that have a long enough spread where it makes sense to have a 100-hour battery doing that. It does make sense for a four-hour, two-hour battery, um, or even a one-hour battery, frankly, um, in ERCOT. Uh, so so that is not the main application that we're going for. We're not trying to arbitrage 
an energy-only market and moving around those kilowatt hours or megawatt hours. Um, rather, what we find, uh, again, in all the, all the cases, you know, somewhat unique uh, but, but common, uh, is that there is a sort of the bulk of the value is, is for that capacity reliability resource, and that's how you're justifying the cost of it. And you will use it as much as you possibly can. It's sort of like every other resource on the grid. You know? It's like you know, utilities go to their commissions and they get assets approved for sort of the original case uh, that they had in mind. And then once it's an asset on the grid, you're going to use it as much as you possibly can to the highest value. You're, not, you're never going to use it to negative value, but you'll use it for a lot of incremental value. And, and if we sort of look at the dispatch profile for, a, for this kind of battery over the course of a year and we sort of look at the state of charge over the course of a year, we find that a few times per year, inevitably, you know, and when this happens depends on what kind of grid you're in, but inevitably you're discharging flat out for three or four days because of a weather event. But we also find that there's a lot of activity that's happening intra-season. So you may have, you know, sort of an oversupply of renewables in the spring and demand is relatively low. And so you're sort of ratcheting up the state of charge over the course of two or three weeks because that's the right thing to do. And then in summer, you may have a bit of a deficit that you accrue over the course of a month, let's say, or six weeks. And in that case, you're ratcheting down the duration um, of, uh, or, or down the state of charge for the battery as you're net discharging into the system. And so, um, or maybe doing ramping support if that's if that's a valuable thing to do. Uh, so, so when we actually dispatch it per the profile optimization of a given utility, it's in the end, it's doing a lot of things. It, its core, you know, reason for being, of course, is that is that multi-day duration capacity resource. And then on top of it, you're using it for a lot of things. Yeah, and I've seen these profiles that you guys have put together, hourly profiles of what it's going to look like. It's like a, you know, it's a, it's lots of shallow cycling up and down, but with a clear net trend, and that net trend lasts days to weeks to seasons. Um, but in between during that time, it's a net trend, so there's lots of ups and downs in the meantime because you're charging and discharging to do whatever other purpose you have. That's right, and. And I should be clear, you know, 100 hours, you know, nobody at Forum believes that 100 hours, a nice round number that, that suits our human sensibilities, that that's like the, the universe, you know, deciding that's the optimum number. And there are some grids that would prefer probably 150 hours or 175 hours, you know, and other grids that may prefer sort of 75 or 80 hours. Um, but what we are doing is introducing a product at 100 hours that allows us to solve the bulk of the market down the line we we almost certainly will be optimizing for you know more niche sort of markets you know what does the irish battery what should that look like over the longer term right a lot of offshore wind you know a lot of congestion on on the island okay maybe that wants a little bit longer battery uh or you know arizona prefers a shorter duration battery because they've got great solar resource you know all year round um so I also want to be clear it's not like i i believe or you know the modeling would say that you only need exactly one one duration, and that duration is 100 hours. Um, but it does allow us to, to address the very large bulk of the market. So I guess stepping back to sort of what this th this tells us about the future of a decarbonized grid, as, as you said, you know, it's a mix of resources that we're going to need. I think we agree that like a fundamental principle underlying form's existence, as I, as I think about it, is like continued growth of intermittent renewables. Right, that is a that's a fundamental tenet. So let's posit that's going to continue to happen. Um, there's going to be other stuff as well in the decarbonized grid. And so you know, 
as you think about the form's competitive landscape, I guess, it's not really lithium-ion batteries. It's other things that can serve a, uh, a capacity reliability type service in a decarbonized fashion. So what's on that list for you? Yeah, we, we think about it from a substitution standpoint. So so what type of resource could perform the same sorts of function? Um, you know, carbon carbon capture would be one. Um, you know, if you could sort of neatly put a put a box on top of the flue gas and capture the carbon, that that would essentially solve uh, the, the big challenge there. Now it would add cost. So so again, it all comes down to cost. Uh, you know, for the, for the industry, and we have to be really mindful of that. Um, uh, so, so, but that would be an option potentially. And there are some there are some pathways that are being explored there. Uh, another would be hydrogen. There's a, a lot of discussion around hydrogen in the system today. Uh, again, big questions on cost and big questions on sort of scalability of that. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, might be more transmission, like a lot more. So, if you, if you could, you know, wheel a kilowatt hour from from Arizona into New York, uh, you know, frictionlessly with no loss. Uh, any time of the year, well, that would be beneficial for the system. Maybe you don't need as much storage. Um, also has challenges for for timeline and cost. Um, so, so those are a couple of things. Um, you know, part of what we're going for is speed. However, uh, speed and scale. And and one nice thing about batteries is that they can be deployed at scale. They're not terribly complex, right? Uh, we are we build modular systems. You know, our, our iron air battery is a it's a meter scale device that we we'll go build very many of in a factory. And that means we can have high quality, we can have you know, good performance, um, and we can have good scalability, we can drive our costs down. Um, that, that's sort of key to, to everything there. And, and so uh, we see this as a, as a bit of a race. There are other technologies, hopefully, that do show up on the system um, that, that help uh, the electric grid overall, not just meet its decarbonization goals, but also meet its load growth goals. And I, I would say that's one big difference in the mindset, shale, from when we started the company. We sort of were anticipating a huge amount of renewables growth, but I think the overall demand growth is is really new to the picture. And it's trending that we would double this, we would need a grid, which is twice the size that it is today, by about 2045, 2050, roughly, given the, given the growth rates. And, and that's not even really digesting the impacts for uh, <laughs> whatever they may be. Uh, on on the uh, you know large language model compute side of things, which is which is driving demand bonkers right now. Um, so so it's really load growth mixed with more renewables, but it's really every type of resource generation resource showing up trying to help more or less. We're, we're going to need to build as much solar as we possibly can. We need to build as much nuclear as we possibly can. We're going to need to build as much wind and and geothermal and you know on down the line, absolutely everything. And and so that's sort of the the broad contour of the market that we see and having this kind of asset, you know, cost-effective multi-day storage um, just slots right in there and, and I think um, can, be, can be a, a very impactful asset class for the entire electric system. I noticed that you did not mention my favorite asset, which is my Bitcoin mine on a barge idea. <laughs> it's been six months in the Northern Hemisphere, six months in the Southern Hemisphere and just soaks up excess load, uh, or sorry, excess generation in uh in each region, you should just add that. We'll to do your... some iron reduction on that on that barge too. We'll uh, yeah, we'll move iron around the world. I mean, I guess know, that's more valuable. If you're <laughs> fine, you're probably a Web three skeptic yeah. too. Anyway, um, Mateo, this was fun as always. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Joe. Mateo Harmio is the co-founder and CEO of Form Energy. This show is a co-production of Latitude Media and Canary Media. 
can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. Latitude Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude backs visionaries accelerating climate innovation that will reshape the global economy for the betterment of people and planet. Learn more about their portfolio and investment strategy at preludeventures.com. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst.